Geopolitics and Empire is joined by journalist and writer Todd Miller, who has been covering border issues for over 15 years. His latest books are Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, and Build Bridges, Not Walls, a journey to a world without borders. We'll be talking about the border security complex, something new uh, to me. How are you doing over there on the other side of the border in Arizona, Todd? Uh, very good. Thank, thanks so much for having me on. Yes, it's great to, to have you uh, here. And I really enjoyed uh, your book. Uh, I recommend it to, to listeners. And so that's what we're, we're going to be getting uh, into, talking about this border industrial complex. Uh, I and I'm sure my listeners have been well aware of the national security complex, the military industrial complex, and even the prison industrial complex. But somehow I never, never came across this idea of the border industrial complex. And let, let me preface the discussion with my loose idea on borders. You know, there's a part of me that says having strong borders is good to maintain uh, law and order uh, everywhere I've traveled to from Central Asia, Russia, Europe, and the Americas, you know, entry requirements were strictly enforced. But on the other hand, I've yearned for the world prior to the Great War of 1914, you know, before World War One, where there were no passports. And I assume people were able to travel more freely. I, I like that idea. Uh, and so, you know, one fascinating statistic you relate in your book is that only 6% of the global population boards a plane in a given year. One of the key themes running through your book is how borders are being fortified against the poor, preventing them from travel uh, and mobility, while the wealthy have free reign to traverse the globe. Uh, one statistic you cite is the ratio of GDP per capita between countries having gone from 22 to 1 to 267 to 1. So I thought we could start, you know, with your book, Empire of Borders. It's focused on the U.S. empire, border, border industrial complex, uh, militarization of the border, and how we're not just talking about the U.S., Canada, U.S., Mexico border. This goes way beyond uh, that. And that this is all bipartisan uh, in nature, right? It's not just, you know, the Republicans, but the Democratic Party is equally invested uh, in this. And something you talk about, the securocratic uh, war, not of nations against nations, but of the global wealthy elite versus, you know, the rest of mankind. So start uh, start where you like yeah i mean i guess i could start with uh just looking at the border industrial complex or um or or better i should mention there's when to 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 um underscore what you're saying about um how in the united states the border building has been a bipartisan effort and that it's much more than um than just the us mexico border or the us canadian border and um, and just uh, two weeks ago, the Biden administration announced that it was going to uh, uh, give assistance to Mexico, uh, Guatemala, and Honduras. I do believe those are the three countries. And when you look, and when you looked at the assist, when you started reading about what the assistance was, it was so those countries can um, fortify their borders or enforce their borders even more. Um, then they already, he didn't, they, they didn't say it that way. They didn't say even more, but I'm saying even more because this has been a dynamic that's been going on for, for a long time. Um, and, uh, and so when I, when I saw that, I, I mean, my, my first thought was, wow, this is, um, I mean, this it wasn't even, wow, it was actually not even that much of a surprise, but it, reinforce the notion that the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before, the Trump administration got a lot of media and press for the wall. And, but 
very little media and press for the other things that it was doing around the border, including like building up technologies and expanding the border to other countries. Although, and this was going on during the Trump administration. I guess I guess it made some made some press when when Trump threatened Mexico, for example. I think it was two years ago with um, tariffs if it didn't if Mexico didn't didn't um, you know do more enforcement of its southern border with Guatemala, and so and so that so that. Uh, that was almost like, oh, the cat's out of the bag. You, you, you got to see what usually happens under, under the under the table. Um, you you don't usually get to see the kind of pressure that the United States uh, wields on other country, other countries. But with the Trump administration, we had that, I guess, um, luxury of seeing of seeing that sort of pressure in the public, and. Um, and so, so, so you got to get a glimpse at like how the United States pressures countries like Mexico to build up its borders. Um, certainly, that's ha- also happening in Guatemala and Honduras. And now we're seeing this with the Biden administration, and we saw it with the Obama administration, and we saw it with the George W. Bush administration. And really, um, this phenomenon of expansion of borders is is a is very much a post nine eleven phenomenon, but it precedes it as well. So you saw it with presidencies before and and um so that's i mean i think that's a good place to start just look at the scope of it um how big the border apparatus is and in empire of borders um i not only the 2019 book i not only look at the kind of budgets that have gone into the u.s border apparatus so if you look at if you look at the just the u.s borders it's territorial borders and uh, you look at the budgets from the mid 1990s. I like to use the mid 1990s because that's when the the prevention through deterrence strategy. Right now on the on the U.S. Mexico border, particularly, you see this deterrence strategy that is that relies on the buildup of um, technologies, the build the concentration of agents, and the building of barriers and walls. In urban areas, which are traditional places where people would cross the border, and the deterrence part of it is to that that it forces people to circumvent those areas and go into like the desert in Arizona. And um, one of the things that we've been seeing in Arizona, year after year after year, starting from the 1990s, is that body, people have perished or died coming through through the desert. And that's part of the, the the deterrence strategy. Some people call it death by design. The idea that if people would be risking their their lives by by walking through um, really desolate and dangerous places for days, if not weeks, and sometimes sometimes, and um, and with w- not able to carry enough water or food, um, and that's something that we've seen in where I live. I live in Tucson which is in Southern Arizona and just right around Tucson there's it's, and we can think this is going to happen again as, as it's getting into May and June and July, the really hot months in the desert that we're going to hear stories about people, bodies being found in the borderlands. And that's, but that's been part of the strategy, part of the buildup. And if you look at 1994, the, the budget was $1.5 billion. And then the, then you you watch the annual budgets go from there to now, 
2025, uh, $25 billion. That's looking at customs and border protection and ICE, immigration and customs enforcement. And the and this is it's it's something that's incrementally increased over the last 25 years. Uh, there's been spurts like in the post 9/11 George W. Bush administration, you, the budget went from I think it was around five billion when Bush took office to 15 billion when he left. So you could see that that those years with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and that sort of thing. And, and really, it was those post 9-11 years when the border apparatus went from being something that was there, something that got some attention, but very little attention from the U.S. federal government, to something that was a priority, um, the, to something that actually became a sort of uh, a money juggernaut as well. And with this increased budgets, especially during from about 2001 to 2008, you saw uh, what you could see is a lot of conventions, uh, different exhibition halls coming to, uh, that that were displaying with, uh, filled with different companies that were that were trying to sell technologies, particularly surveillance technologies, to the U.S. federal government for its border apparatus. And not only the U.S. federal government, I should say, also counties like the the um, sheriff departments and counties that are along the border. Uh, the, the police departments are also getting border border enforcement technologies. And you just see the sort of the, that sort of those sorts of markets going up and up and up and up, um, particularly in the immediate in those immediate years after 9-11. And then just plat kind of you see a kind of spurt and then a plateauing and then a, and then a, a continual rise. And and so um, so the tech so the technologies are often technologies that have been used in for the United States at least are been are technologies that are have been used in war operations abroad, like the drones, for example. Right, the United uh, the U.S. CBP Customs and Border Protection has a fleet of ten Predator B drones. The Predator Bs. Um, uh, come from oper they they're what the United States is used in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. And what they what they've done is they've taken out the weapons and put in like advanced surveillance equipment. And and these drones are now deployed on the border, not only on the southern border, the northern border as well, and uh, the Caribbean. So these this and and the Caribbean, whatever the United States thinks its territory in the Caribbean is, which is often, you know, thousand miles away from the U.S. mainland, on the outskirts of Puerto Rico, near the Dominican Republic, near Haiti, um, all those places. If you want to look at to how the U.S. border extends much further than the, its U.S. southern the, the Mexico border or the southern border, you can. Those are good places to look because you can see U.S. Border Patrol, U.S. Coast Guard, and these sort of border operations operating. In those in those areas, a thousand miles from the mainland, um, yeah. So you have this kind of confluence of of these increased budgets, um, the the um, this this kind of rapid expansion of the border. The, the even before Trump took took office, there was all this wall building and fence building. Um, by the in fact, when Trump took took off, got to the White House in two thousand seventeen. He had a budget of twenty billion already at his disposal, 
So the things that I always think when I think of the Trump administration, I think, well, he had all this arsenal at his disposal and the things that he could do was because of that, literally because of everything that had been built up before him. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of technologies, um, motion sensors, high tech surveillance cameras, um, uh, biometric systems, you name it. So, yeah, some, something that was interesting for me, just to go back, I mean, in your book, you're talking about, you visited a lot of these, you know, in, uh, industry uh, events, con- conference events. I mean, it's it's like an extension of the military industrial complex. And as well in your book, uh, I mean, talking about these drones from Afghanistan coming back home now to the US, you talk about Alfred McCoy. Uh, I got the book behind me somewhere where his book on the Philippines, where basically the US is is building up it, it built up. It's like the beginnings of the police state apparatus uh, in the Philippines. And then, you know, in, in Vietnam, it was built up again. You know, the first rudimentary drones were used in Vietnam. You mentioned that in your book. And, you know, now in the Middle East and now all of this stuff is coming back home to be applied uh, against us. And then something for me that was shocking, I'm, I guess, you know, the military industrial complex is bipartisan, you know, left and right. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, they they, they uh, goose step to the same beat and you know there was all this talk of the last couple of years of trump and the wall and then i was kind of shocked recently uh, and you sent me a report that you did uh on this published just a few months ago I'll, I'll include that in the description people should uh go through that report it's not that long uh but basically how um you know this, we had this idea of trump putting up this old-fashioned wall but now under biden you know the, as you said this was there the whole time but but now, you know, under Biden, we're having this they're doing this high tech surveillance virtual wall with smart borders, you know, drones, AI surveillance, all of this crazy stuff. And so uh, and I was reading yesterday, I think that the Biden administration spent three billion dollars uh, on these migrant centers. I, I'm not following that so closely, but I mean, basically, it's not a left right issue. It's just this huge complex that's, you know, building up this security state. Yeah, that's. And it's, but it's presented as a left-right issue, right? It's, it's, or I, I would say in the United States speak, a Democrat, Republican, because um, some, some, some people that would say that they're lefty in the United States probably wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't, uh, you know, be in an agreement, but, um, but it, it, but it's presented in this and, you know, the, the whole, the, the years, the four years of Trump, it's, it's like, oh, we have to get a Democrat in office. Um, because this all of this uh, uh, cruelty or what we're seeing on the border, the brutalization of people that we're going to see on the border will stop and could be anything be further than the truth. And if you, it's, it's, it, it takes um, a certain, it just, it, it actually takes ignorance, uh, like an ignorance of his, of how this thing has been built up. Um, and, and unfortunately in, in many of the, the media narratives, and um, I, you, as you can tell, I probably you can probably see me shouting at the radio <laughs> or something like that. But um, there it's 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 presented in this way, and this and and you don't get the basic strategy of the word of the prevention through deterrence. You don't hear about the beginning operations of it in the '90s under the Bill Clinton administration, Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Safeguard, Operation Hold the Line. You don't see like the how the budgets in, during the Clinton administration uh, tripled. It went from 1.5 billion to four, nearly tripled 1.5 billion to 4.2 billion. You don't even hear about the George W. Bush administration that much. And the post 9 11 era is really just a game changer as far as 
as far as the money faucets coming, you know, opening up and the, this buildup that we've seen, like where I live is, is, is a war in many ways is a war zone. It's treated like a war zone by the practitioners. Um, there's checkpoints everywhere. There's, there's surveillance equipment everywhere. There's a sort of profiling that's done by, by, you know, Homeland security officials and the border patrol. There's, you don't know if you're being watched. It's like Michel Foucault's, uh, panopticon, right? You're there. You, you know that there's all this stuff out there. Are am I being watched? Am I not being watched? Why are all these cameras like pointing at my car on the side of the highway? You know what is the bio? You know what are these biomet biometric systems? You know, and so it's so it's something. You know, it's just built up, and it's 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 like a whole system unto itself. It and and that's what I I think. I mean, although, of course, there's differences. You don't want to say there's not a difference between a Trump and a Biden. There are, there are differences. Um, however, what Trump would, might say that he's going to do explicitly, Biden will, will do some, a variant of that and, um, and not say anything about it, right? And so, it's, uh, so, so what, what we knew was happening under the Trump administration, you don't know. Is, ha- is happening under the Biden administration. And since it's put in that sort of narrative, this kind of mainstream assumption, I guess, is that there's nothing happening. And then, and then one final point on this is that turned from, from this idea of the border wall to technology. And the, tech- the technology aspect of it is always put in, oh, it's more humane. Oh, it's more this, it's more that. Oh, it's a, you know, a smart, you know, all, these, all these really nice adjectives. You know, it's a smart border. And... Um, and really, when you look at what the, the strategy is, the deterrent strategy, look at what's been developed over 25 years, and that's a border wall system. The border wall system has three components to it, and that's the wall, but it's also the agents, and it's also the technology. The technology is a part of it. So what, what the Biden administration is saying that they're developing is a part of the same thing that the Trump administration was saying it was developing. And, and actually now knowing what I know, like doing all these reporting on it and going in, into all these conferences and learning about all these technologies and pretty in-depthly, I would say it's worse, right? You have, you have these, these tech, you know, cameras that can see 7.5 miles away, ground sweeping radar with a radius of 13 miles, the drones that we just talked about, the, these biometric facial recognition. Um, I, I get like, I have these flat, you know, you go through a checkpoint and something flashes in your face. And I've said, is that facial recognition? I know you all are deploying it. And they'll say, no, <laughs> but it's, it, 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 I mean, but now they're, they're admitting to it having in the ports of entry, you know? So this idea of your face being associated with a, a data in a database and, and all of that, you know, the stuff that really Orwell wrote about and, and it's, it's all, and that's, but it, but instead of really thinking about what all this is, it's like, oh, this is a humane way to to um to uh to enforce the border, and and it's really it's just a trick. It's a rhetorical trick, I think, and and so it's it's it fortunately works because you see a lot less focus on what's really going on. Yeah, I wanted to maybe to delve deeper and see how this uh, applies far from the U.S. Uh, Border, you know, maybe taking uh, Mexico as an example in your in your book. I mean, it's crazy. You write how the Customs and Border Patrol and so many of these other U.S. agencies are working all over the world, like in dozens and dozens of countries. They've got offices 
all over the planet. So it's not just, you know, the U.S., Canada, U.S., Mexico border. I mean, like, what are they doing on, on with all of, the, all of these other countries around the world? Maybe we could look at Mexico to start. You know, and you were writing in 2015, Mexico, for the first time, deported more Central uh, American migrants than the, the USA. Uh, and, and a lot of what Mexico is doing with its borders is U.S. directed and, and funded, as, as you said. And um, you write that Mexico has been hired by the U.S., to protect the U.S. border from a thousand miles away. Uh, in the past, I've interviewed people like Jefferson Morley, whose research has revealed that a number of Mexican presidents have doubled as CIA agents. You know, we have the de declassified documents on that. Uh, you know, we, we know a large part of the financial system in Mexico is controlled by, uh, you know, Wall Street or Washington. And then, you know, you mentioned how NAFTA has done away with parts of the Mexican constitution. So, you know, to what extent do you feel Mexico, for example, is the subject of the U.S. empire, uh, at least in terms of border policy or, or, or other issues? You know, how much sovereignty has Mexico given up? A ton. It's. It, I mean, it seems like um, really quite a bit. And um, I mean, you can look at it so many different ways. I mean, that what you just mentioned about the constitution, like changing the constitution, um, like the Article 27, I think that's the most famous uh, modification that protected on um, communal lands in Mexico. Um, having those sorts of shifts uh, to make way for the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, which was written by what 500 corporations, um, and uh, those, and really setting the rules for these corporate entities to determine again what borders really like it's 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 a, it's really an open border policy for a certain subset of of people mainly and institutions and mainly mainly the idea of corporate business that can then fly over the border if there's that 35,000 feet and not worry about any sort of border patrol but at the same time you know the ramifications like for example after nafta was passed um small farmers in, in mexico who had subsidies from from the Mexican government? Who had a guaranteed price for their corn? For example, if we're talking about corn, um, all that was eliminated to make way for NAFTA for in the idea of free market, um, free trade. Right, you taking away the subsidies, and then the next thing you know, the farmers are in direct competition with Archer Daniel Midland or Cargill, like big grain movers in the U.S. who just can go and dominate and underprice. You, the farmers in the corn market in Mexico. So that Mexico starts to import corn. And you're seeing that in Central America as well and with Central American crops and with the Central American free trade agreement in like Guatemala and Honduras. And, and, um, and so there's a similar phenomenon happening and the, and you see, and you see those, those sorts of things happening. And one of the most, the most interesting twists to this is then, and that is then, there's an uh, there's a connection with people being displaced, like the small farmer who can't make it anymore, um, who, who then like say you're in from a small community in Oaxaca, and then you end up going to Oaxaca City to work, or you go to Mexico City, or you go to someplace else. You go to a lot of people in Oaxaca go to the north and end up in Baja California or Sonora, or and then or of course naturally then you you end up going to the United States. And you see this similar um, things happening in Central America, where there's one part of it that's being focused on a lot, you know, and it's like, oh, there's there's a, you know, there's a there's a there's a problem of violence and and 
rampant gangs, you know, and that sort of that which is happening, of course. Um, the 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 problematic part is is that it's just it's just kind of presented with with very little context, and um, the the other factors that are really driving uh, displacing people really in in places like Guatemala, um, such as uh, you know economic policy that's just marginalize so many people the majority right the majority um you have so many like people that depend on their harvests uh that live in the mountains of guatemala or in various places and uh and then uh, on top of that you have these droughts that are hitting pretty fiercely um that are connected with global warming uh that so if a farmer loses their harvest it's it just becomes a crisis it really becomes a crisis and then at the same time like this you see you're seeing like demographically there was um when you look at people coming to the united states there was a in the post nafta years there's a great rise of mexicans crossing the border and then it kind of plateaued and went down around 2005 2006 2007 so there was this 10-year um I think it was his, really historic immigration coming from Mexico to the U.S. and but but then all of a sudden you know it went down for Mexico but started going way up for Central America Central American countries and um and and that's when you start seeing like when when you look at the kind of extension of the U.S. border um to like for example in the Mexican Guatemala border or Mexican Belize border that it's been happening. It's 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 happened before the nine eleven the nine eleven, like you could go back to points in history such as um, when the civil wars were happening in Central America in the nineteen eighties, for example, and tons of people were fleeing, and the INS, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Service from the United States, was like putting a lot of pressure on Mexico to enforce its borders. So you can see the the idea of it, even though it wasn't sustained happening, you know, in hit, you know, even three decades ago. However, what happened in the 9-11 after 9-11 was it just became a part of the strategy. It really, the, this idea of pushing out the border, extending the zone of security or externalizing the border. However, yeah, I've heard the officials will use many different parlances or many different terms. That sort of thing, it just really started happening with regularity in that post 9-11 and you could see it in mexico almost that was almost the first place um like the plan sur with that that uh came out of it was um during the vicente fox administration and the there was a lot of talk of the plan puebla panama which of course had uh had uh, had um, a lot of u.s corporate interests and this idea of plan sur which is the build up the U, the mexican guatemalan border um that you could see that but with the, what we're seeing now is, a, is, is there's a foundational part of it, but what we're seeing now in Mexico is um, directly result, resulting from what's known as a Marietta Initiative. And this is like a, a military package that the United States gave to Mexico starting in 2008 with the George W. Bush administration, but very much continued under the Barack Obama administration. And then you look at 2012 when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and they did a bunch of of changes to the Merida Initiative, including um, these pillars. And the third pillar was called um, creating a 21st century border, and that was directly about you know giving resources to Mexico. 
I mean, the pressure is there. It's assumed there that the whole Trump tariff thing that was probably happening like then as well. You just didn't hear about it. But the here, but you have the resources, um, like helicopters, biometric systems, what they call biometric kiosks, motion sensors, that sort of thing. The anyone who's traveled in southern Mexico and gone up from the southern border and gone into these like shopping mall sized checkpoints. Those are all financed by the United States. Um, so there's those sorts of things. And there's also um, the trainings. So the U.S. Border Patrol, U.S. CBP agents have gone down to Mexico and trained Mexican immigration officials who are not allowed to be armed. So they often work, they work with the Mexican police and military. And so, they, so, so those, there's been many trainings. Um, I think these trainings are happening very regularly from 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 what I know in places like Tapatula, and um, and and then by by the time 2014 2015, when you see this now, the significant rise of people coming from Central America is more is very evident. There, Mexico announces the Programa Frontera Sur, which is like the Southern Border Program, which was immediately if you look at that, it's 2014 July that Mex- Enrique Peña Nieto in Mexico announces it. And then um, almost two days later, or one day later, the U.S. Embassy issues a cable and says, congratulations, you know, it was great. Uh, and then they list off. They said, we've been helping Mexico. We've been training them. We've been so pretty. I mean, it's it's something that nobody's ashamed of, right, in an official dumb. It's not something they're trying to hide. It's like, oh, we're helping. This is This is good. We're building up this border. And then you go to 2015 after this, the Southern border program has been implemented for a while. And you see that shift. You see that shift from, from us deporting more central Americans to Mexico, deporting more central Americans. And it's really, um, I like to look at it and you alluded to this, that, that, that it was you, the United States is hiring instead of hiring 2000 more border patrol agents, it's hiring Mexico to be a, this massive border patrol agent. And that's and that's that's kind of the building blocks of this externalization. And the, and the other part of it is it doesn't just stop in Mexico. Now you're seeing it go further and further and further. But that's, I mean, that's basically where we're at and it just continues to be more and more built up to this, to this day. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm, we're starting to see now in Mexico, all these laws being passed, biometric stuff. So soon uh, you have to register the, your biometrics, um, nationality, home address, um, ID number to, to use the SIM card, a mobile phone. Uh, just two months ago, they turned on geolocation for banking apps. So you can't access your bank account unless you turn on geolocation. So all this stuff is coming in. For me, one of the biggest takeaways uh, from your book that I find, um, you know, you, you speak of something kind of frightening, how since 1989's fall of the Berlin Wall, We've gone from 15 to 77 border walls uh, around the world and the creation of this global border uh, system. And th- this seems to gel with a lot of what uh, I talk about on, on this podcast with other guests. You know, this uh, idea of of globalism, uh, of this like a global technocratic control system. And it's like this global fascism in a sense, this global growing global police state of these where it's just. Uh, money that's concentr- concentrated at the transnational uh, level with these corporations, uh, and it's then it's the rest of us. You know, we've heard like Davos and Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset kind of uh, alluding to this. And just to quote from your book, you, you write that 
border security was between the transnational elites and the rest of the world. The, the harmonized global border system was not necessarily attached to the nation state, but rather to the global economy. The elite world was not beholden to the flags of indiv individual countries, but rather to the banner of Walmart, Boeing, Google, and the power structure that sustains such uh, corporations. Nation states serve to confine and control the masses. You talk about how mining corporations are using the border security complex against native uh, populations. So it's basically like the normal global north, uh, you know, keeping the global south down, uh, where the global elite people who have money can travel. And then, you know, the rest of us, we're in this case system where, where we can't uh, move. And it seems like it's it's becoming global, as you say, it's expanding. And so could you talk a little bit uh, about that? Well, I think um, when I went in, when I went into writing Empire of Quarters, I, I, I was just looking at, you know, the U.S. and the U.S. expansion of the border. But it, you know, like oftentimes when I write, write a book, um, there are like major epiphanies that happen while writing the book. Um, things that, you know, I didn't know I would discover by going into this. And the one, the thing about this particular book that was a major, a major realization was, um, was exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I remember when I had it, I went to an international summit on borders and it was in Washington, DC. It was pretty much put on by Customs and Border Protection. And um, they brought in like people, of, I think 40 different border patrols from all, all over the world. And, um, and I'm, I mean, there's so much, I'm just sitting there, you know, like a sponge trying to like understand what's going on. And um, there's so much talk about harmonization, right? Like harmonizing, bringing our border, like bringing our borders together. And then it, th it was then it, it was like, oh, you know, this, like, if I just think of a border as a U.S.-Mexico border, which is, which is, you know, um, I guess it's logical to think that way. And and of course, it's it there's there's a there's a degree of like, you're correct to think that way. But at the same time, it's just one part of something that's much bigger. That's something much grander. That's um, something that's much more global. And um, so I was looking at the U.S. border expansion, but, but first the US, European Union does the same thing. And of course, um, then you start looking at Australia. Australia claims to be the first country to, 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 to uh, extend its borders. And then the way that European Union officials, Australia, um, Australian officials, United States officials, Canadian officials, you know, you name it, start talking to each other in these summits, it becomes quite clear that this, what they're doing is just constructing these parts of a, of this bigger, much ma more massive apparatus than, than I could even fathom that was going on. And, and I actually knew about this stuff like going into this. So that's like when you think, talk about the 77 border walls, well, this thing, those 77 border walls is a part of this, this kind of, I guess, um, collaboration of elites that are, that are coming together, you know, putting up these, these, these walls, then train, you know, all this border patrol training that the United States does, um, not only in Mexico, but in Guatemala and Honduras and Panama and Colombia and Dominican Republic and Kenya and the Philippines and Jordan, you know, you start looking at it and it's, and it's, and it's, um, 
you know, it all comes together in sort of a harmony and a certain logic of it because these, these, these things are going like when you look at Jordan and you go to the Jordanian Iraqi border and you're like, Oh yeah, that's where the United States occupied Iraq. Um, you know, there's so much U S interest or Syria, the Syrian border with Jordan. You start, it, you just like start seeing the, 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 the kind of logic of it. And become like, I started imagining it as a scaffolding, right. A scaffolding of, of these, these many border systems that keeps the system in a system in place, a globalized system, maybe the global economy, the global economy in the sense where certain small portion of people keep getting richer and many others keep getting poorer, right? A, a global economy that's produced two, what is it, 2,200 billionaires and who have more wealth than 4.6 billion people. For something like that to keep, to, to, ha- to, to be able to sustain itself, it needs this kind of militarized apparatus. It needs these like people to be confined to certain places and not being able to have that freedom of movement. And you add in climate and the projections and you have, I just read a projection of 1 billion people um, displaced by 2050. Again, you look into climate change, it's amazing how much doc, like I go into US Pentagon or US Department of Homeland Security, they're thinking about this stuff, right? They're looking at it. They're seeing that people are going to be displaced. And the answer, at least from those sectors, from those departments, is that we got to build up more borders. So the idea that that having, like, controlling, knowing that people are going to be displaced, knowing that there's these vast amounts of inequalities, but then understanding for this to keep going, we have to have this kind of global border apparatus that then kind of, kind of, attempts to control, you know, movements of people, divide people, and keep the kind of status quo intact. And maybe just to build on that and get your uh, opinion on how the pandemic has helped uh, accelerate this process. I've had past uh, experts discuss how, you know, it's pushed us into this hyper, they've called it hyper 1984 uh, scenario, how the pandemic has just catalyze this uh you know if 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 uh, world war one gave us you know one level of travel restriction being the passport it seems now COVID is adding this second layer of restriction now through these digital uh medical passports that are being introduced uh you know i perhaps a decline in travel routes the increase in expense uh, of, of plane tickets not not to mention all the testing requirements that you'll have to be doing longer hotel stays uh, when i left kazakhstan which is usually you know uh, a flight time of a day and a half uh, it took me five days and numerous hotel stays to get back home uh, it seems that the pandemic and its solutions, you know, all these new regulations are going to make life uh, even more of a hell for people attempting to cross borders. You mentioned in your book how the I, an, an official from the IATA in 2018 said in the future that there would only be like uh, one digital biometric ID for travel and for everything. And we're seeing now that, you know, the, the, UA, the EU had this plan for uh, you know, they're talking about these digital green uh, vaccine certificates when actual in that in actuality, you know, they had this plan to implement by 2021, 20, 22, the vaccine digital passport, uh, you know, before COVID by, by in 2018 or, or, or earlier. And then we have Microsoft and Bill Gates talking about these 2020 digital IDs and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, having yourself having researched this, how do you see the, the trajectory that the pen, pandemic has put us on in terms of travel and restrictions? 
it, it's, it, we're totally in that trajectory. Um, and unfortunately so, because the pandemic really speaks to a world that needs to come together to come to a solution. Like the idea of more divisions, obviously with a pandemic, you know, if, if somebody's sick, quarantining them is a good idea. But locking down like 2,000 mile long borders and uh, making it more difficult in that sense, it's just it's it's just kind of ridiculous. I, there's a cartoon that uh, that um, that came out uh, maybe about a year ago. It's just when the pandemic was first raging and had this general and he was at a border wall. And he had missiles coming out of it and he was looking intently and his um his kind of sidekick was had also had binoculars but i was looking up and seeing the coronavirus you know like a picture of it just float over right this so these these ideas in other words these ideas of of militarized borders you know the, the cartoon kind of says it all that just it, the coronavirus and justifies more of it while at the same time uh, when you're talking about a global pandemic or i mean which i think is an indication of of the, a similar dynamic of what we're seeing with climate change but you start looking at a global pandemic, it's just going it, to, the that whatever the militarized border, it doesn't even matter. Right. And, um, and, and, but, it, but that's exactly what you say, like the, the kind of, um, you know, li looking at where this is going, it's definitely going in the whole border control apparatus is going into, again, a harmonized international um, sort of um, standardized uh, model. And um, where many different countries, and I, I should say the elites of many countries, the governments of many countries are coming together. And um, the whole idea of the idea of a passport going totally digital is very much on the table. Um, I, I, I've heard this mentioned so many times that I think it's in the planning. In other words, faith, the idea of facial recognition, your face becomes your passport and you, you go into you arrive from a place and, and you get it and you get into an airport and if everything checks out with your face, you just go through without talking to anyone. But if it doesn't check out, watch out. Right. Um, and, and so it's definitely going to a digital thing, which it makes it so much easier to store so much about you. If, if you look at um, the United States has this biometric system called IDENTS, the CDP has had this for like 20 years, but, but, here we're well, talking to officials and how much this has increased um like from say september 11th 9 2001 to now it, it went from less than a million people in the database to like 30 or 40 million people or some something ridiculous and now um now the the ident cannot store what they need to store and it doesn't have enough as i say modalities so now they're now they're transitioning to what is known as a HART H A R T Homeland Advanced Tech, uh, Recognition Technology HART, and um, this whole this thing is supposed to have all kinds of uh, modalities such as you know the facial recognition, but also do you have a tattoo on your arm? Do you have scars? A whole GPS tracking thing. Why were you in this location? Why were you in that location? Relational, like, were you meeting with that person? Were you meeting with uh, this other person? And then now with COVID, like, why wouldn't they put health stuff on it? Like, um, did you get a vaccine? Did you not get a vaccine? Like, which, which, it, which just is unbelievable because you have the U.S. at this moment hoarding vaccines, really, 
um, and vaccines not being distributed around the world, again, showing the kind of inequalities. Um, and so, like, again, you know, if that if that's added another layer to the passport is a, a vaccine thing, then U.S. citizens, again, are, oh, we're, I'm vaccinated, but you and the, I just read an article by Walden Bello from the Philippines who said, like three percent of the entire country of the Philippines was vaccinated, so what? So nobody would be able to travel. So that's a thing. You're getting all these like layers, and and what what COVID has done is just given it another. Uh, it's another excuse as far as borders are concerned to 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 make them more fortified. And on the actual U.S. Mexico border, they've been using what's known as Title Forty Two which is basically CBP or Border Patrol can just do rapid expulsions. So if they arrest somebody, they're just rapidly deported back to Mexico, wherever. Um, and that, and it's still like right now, that's still the case. So this, the, the in, even more harsher sort of enforcement. And I, and I know that like, you know, when the caravan of 8,000 people from Honduras crossed into Guatemala in January, that, um, um, Guatemala used used uh, the justification for blockading this group, this caravan of eight thousand people, were that you had to test negative, you had to do it, had to have a COVID test, test negative to enter Guatemala, and uh, nobody had done that, so they blockaded the road. These are again U.S. trained Guatemalan border patrols. Really, they blocked the road, and they end up tear gassing and deporting most of that first caravan, that caravan in January. And so those those sorts of things of using COVID to to um, to more lockdown borders, even though it has nothing, really nothing. There's there's not a like a like the the World Health Organizations argues that you shouldn't lock down your borders during a pandemic. So there's no no science behind doing this. Mm -hmm. It's not like you quarantine and you you're quarantined in a room. It's a whole other thing. It's much vaster and bigger. And it really has no little to no effect, but it definitely seems like it's being used and following that similar, very similar trajectory. And finally, just to get, you know, any other points that you want to make, perhaps uh, solutions, you know, one listener uh, wrote in, sent a question and asked, you know, do you think, because you, you mentioned a large, the main problem is uh, economic, right? These corporations came into Central South America and other parts of the world and destroyed the economic system and impoverished a whole bunch of people in their own native land. And so now these people need to go uh, find work and move north. You know, so the listener asked, do you think like a type of Marshall Plan for Central uh, America uh, would help? And, you know, what other solutions uh, do, do you propose or answers to some of these crazy border policies? I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, if you, if a Marshall Plan is the problem with, with plans and assistance, um, especially coming from the United, United States, there's a whole history of like USAID um, assistance that, that, really goes to reinforce kind of U.S. influence or even U.S. empire um, in places like Guatemala or Honduras. And and so like a Marshall Plan could be effective, but I think it would have to be like even designed in such a way that um, I would say that local people should be making the the big decisions because it's, it's always people in communities that know what they need. Um, it's like if if 
I always think like one of the, one of the things when I, when I, when we're thinking about the borders, um, I think like, you know, like the border itself, if you think of the U S Mexico border, it's, it's this quote unquote solution to a problem that's often thousands of miles away. And the actual problem is, is really not being addressed. And then the actual people who are displaced are not even being talked to, right? Like, like it, it could be like, you know, the, per, the person coming that leaves Guatemala, for example, because of uh, a host of reasons, a- economic marginalization being one of them. Maybe there's a mine uh, with as there's hundreds of them all over throughout Guatemala, or maybe the harvest, you know, the droughts came in the heart, you know, due to the changes of the climate, or maybe it's a host of all these different problems just coming to a head and you just can't make it anymore. And when you start hearing those sorts of things, then, then, you know, it seems like a Marshall plan in that sense, uh, that that was locally driven there were where people were being really listened to what their needs are i think that could be really helpful you could look at also you know when you look at mexico or you or central america or so many different iraq iraq or so many different places around the world and the idea of reparations like why you know if 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 uh if you look at like u.s policy um and and it's and it's dire effects in places like Guatemala, the you know the United Fruit being almost foundational to that, and the CIA instigated coup d'état in 1954, and the military dictatorship that followed, and the 200,000 people slaughtered that followed. By the time peace was arrived in 1996, and then peace was implementing kind of a neoliberal economic system. Which then uh, then favored the big corporations like United Fruit again, and and you look at that, and you look at the kind of and the military assistance that the United States gave Guatemala, the the military training that Guatemalan generals got. I'm just using Guatemala as an example, um, and you see this kind of destruction. And if you're going to think ethically, right? If if you go to ethics, then it would seem like instead of building a big border wall, um, pressuring Mexico to build a, also a big border enforcement apparatus, pressuring Guatemala to do the same thing with Hondurans, um, that there might be ethically, you know, the, it would seem that there was a, there's a sort of responsibility to having at least, I don't want to see totally creating, but having a huge impact in places and causing damage and devastation and destruction. Um, so it, it seems like there could be something like that that's so unlikely to happen, <laughs> right? You know, you'd have to have like people admitting, you know, officials that never admit to anything, admitting the things, and uh, and it would destroy like the plans that that are continue to this day and in, in places like throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, and and so uh, I mean, I mean, I think like. I think, you know, what's happening now is that in, in the United States is that it's just an automatic with the border. The border just gets more and more money every year. There's really no public debate about it. There's an appropriations debate that happens behind, usually behind closed doors. This is where this border industrial complex becomes really prominent. Like the big companies go in and have have their say with key Congress people, key people in the appropriations committee. and then the border gets the border immigration everything gets more money 
That's how it grows year after year after year. It's an automatic. And this just really needs to be talked about, needs to be unpacked. We have to, when we, when there's talk about comprehensive immigration reform, there's, a, there's a, absolutely no mention of this corporate power. This has to be mentioned. They're an actor. They're a powerful actor. Um, they, these sorts of things need to be unpacked. What is the border actually doing? It, like the, this kind of rhetoric around protection, security is false. It's a farce. It's, um, it's, it's a, it's a PR campaign to keep people thinking that you need to have all this stuff on the border when it really does is create insecurity. It doesn't protect anyone except for a bigger system. Right. And, um, and, and so those sorts of things need to be unpacked ideas of what security really is or human well-being, and really uh, honest assessments of, of what the threats are to, to humanity at this time, which, um, like climate change, for example, or something else, or in, in inequality, or you know those sorts of things. Uh, those assessments, then you can like say, okay, how do we deal with this as a globe? Um, and and right now that's not being done. Like there's more divisions being sown. There's there's less your your the inability. Another part of the border thing is that you have the inability to organize effectively with people across the border. Like, and where I live in a border state, it's ludicrous, you know, that I can't organ or easily organize with people in Sonora. And we're, we're talking with different governments. We're talking, you know, it's, it's just set up. So people with very common interests can't be organizing together. And I think, you know, those sorts of things need to be talked about. And then finally, you know, what, like, I, I did a calculation that, of all the money that went to CBP and ICE since 2003. And it was um, $322 billion. And you think about that and you're like, how can this better be spent? Like, is it this, we're, we know the results of this. We know what's going on. We know that there's companies profiting from this, but couldn't, wouldn't this be better spent with clean water, like clean water, whether it be in Flint, Michigan, or uh, in Guatemala, a community in Guatemala where mine has contaminated their water supply. Or in Zacatecas or another place, um, couldn't you know? Couldn't that money be just better spent, um, even in in terms of human security, human well being, and even in such ways that that could um, alleviate suffering or or um, you know uh, you know not make less sharp the the reasons to that people would feel the need to migrate. Um, and that sort of thing. So I think like what, what, what needs to be established is kind of a, a twin pillar. Like I think a freedom of movement is really essential, especially given like the projections of people being displaced um, in the future. And then also a, a, a right to stay home and a right, a right to be able to stay home. Cause most people don't, don't want to, you know, most people don't, it's it's a really tough decision to to leave and to go and to cross borders and and to risk your life, and um most I mean a lot a lot of people wouldn't want to do that, but it's almost feels forced, and so like those two kind of major things I think would be um something to aspire to. I say aspire to because this because if I were to go out to the streets right now and say this is what needs to happen, like nobody would say nobody would say okay we got to take them on the border right now. It, it seems like it'd have to be a much more gradual project that's talked about diplomatic almost diplomatically 
but in reasonably and, and, and bringing out the facts, unpacking it and saying, this is, this is not working. This needs to be done. We need these other things to happen. And, and I think like even just stopping the increase of, of border enforcement budgets would be one way, just plateauing them instead of them growing or making them go down a light, tiny bit and diverting that money into something else could be a start. Yeah, you mentioned in your book, I forget where it was in Latin America, some driver asks you, you know, how is it that you can come here, uh, but I can't go you know, to America, to your country? And myself, as someone who's traveled around the world, uh, multiple citizenships, I, I really do agree. I think that there, there should be, people should be allowed uh, to travel more freely uh, in, in a legal way, you know, like to allow people give them visas and give them a chance to, to come to the US to Europe to, to travel. Uh, most of the most of the places that I've been around the world, you know, m- most of the people, they, they just want a better job, a better opportunity. It's not like, you know, they're, they're, they're going to the country to, to do damage. And, you know, if they do, they're they're within the country, I assume, you know, we have police forces that can deal with criminals and expel them. But I think People should be like in the old days, you know, I, I, I found in Ellis Island a hundred years ago, some of my ancestors, you know, from Croatia, Yugoslavia, who, who, who went in through um, New York uh, to the U.S. Who, who, who migrated. And so, you know, those were the days, you know, from from the from Ireland, from Europe, who, who, the Italians, all these people who came to the U.S. And I mean, I think that's kind of a. Uh, a good thing to give people the, this opportunity. And so you, you're on Twitter, you're at toddmillerwriter.com. Is there any other website or, or project that we should know about? No, I'm, um, sometimes I'm slow, but I, I tend to update whatever I'm working on, on the toddmillerwriter.com. So um, check that out and you can get updates or, or I'll post them on Twitter um, as well. All right. I'll def- I recommend uh, your Twitter uh, and as well as this, this book. I, I really uh, enjoyed the book uh, and um, recommend it to, re- to readers who want to learn really about this border security complex. I haven't come across a book like that uh, earlier, so it's, it's new to me. Uh, it's very relevant and it's going to be increasing in importance. And so thanks for being uh, on Geopol- Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. It was fun to talk. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.